This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Let's get paid. What's good, fam? It's your host, Jim Pruitt, a.k.a. Forum D and ED, and I'm bringing you guys another episode of the Forum So Hard podcast. Today, we have something a little different. We have a different type of episode where we're not going to go through a ton of content. And for you guys who enjoy uh, just more casual conversations and hearing a very unique uh, story, this is going to be for you guys. I'm going to go ahead and let my guest introduce himself. And for you guys who don't know him, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be hard if you guys have spent any time in toxicology and emergency medicine space. So without further ado, go ahead and introduce yourself for the audience. Thanks for listening. Um, so my name is Craig Kokio. I've been a ER pharmacist for a long time now. Uh, I think it's over 10 years, maybe 11 or 12 at this point, but uh, I've been a residency program director for the large part of that as well. Um, also just two years ago now, uh, board certified in toxicology. So I have a ABAT, so technically a DBAT at the uh, end of end of my name, which is I'm really really happy about. But um, yeah, so I've I've been going through a long career of you know practicing in the emergency department, um, which kind of stimulated some of the early uh, foam application, where I started a blog called EM Farm D. Uh, wrote a lot of articles that came out and uh, just led that discussion. Led the uh, not just led it, but uh, paired with you know other leaders in the pharmacy in the phone world, like Brian Hayes, just started to make sure that pharmacists were getting voices out, um, our perspective, drug experts and whatnot, um, for emergency medicine uh, for a long time, also on Twitter for a little while too. But uh, a lot of things have changed recently. Uh, you know, career has progressed to a certain point where I'm still really happy working in the emergency department. But actually, uh, officially a year ago, I, I took a role with a a medical education company called uh, High Yield Med Reviews, and it's uh, operated by a amazing uh, physician. His name is uh, Tony Bustai, but he was actually a nurse before going to pharmacy school, and then he was pharmacy faculty at Texas Tech, and then went to medical school uh, and uh, graduated, went to do an ER residency at Johns Hopkins, and now is an ER uh, clinical physician. Um, and along the way, he started a lot of education practices, uh, continuing on what he was doing as a career to try to improve knowledge on so many different professions. But um, lately, it's been a lot with pharmacy. So one of the things I wanted to do today was kind of talk about that, uh, you know, how, you know, formal education has gone from, you know, FOMEN, which is still great, but there's a lot of other resources that we've tried to uh, focus on and make uh, really applicable, not just to pharmacists, but pretty much any any healthcare provi- provider out there. Absolutely. And, and it seems like this guy's going to be a, a lifer. There's always that, that person who's in school for forever. So if you're a nurse, then a pharmacist, then a physician, then you go to residency. So it, it really shows the dedication if you're going to do all of those things. And the same for when you get an ABAT, like you really have to want to get that, especially if you don't do a toxicology fellowship. And we've talked previously in our episode on CROFAB. And uh, I just, again, want to emphasize, if you're a pharmacist out there and you did not do a toxicology fellowship, there's a way to get an ABAC, but you really have to want it. There's uh, no offense to all the other certifications that are out there, but let's just be real. (laughs) 
uh, when it comes to the rigor of, and I believe we, we quoted something like less than 60% or less than like 40% of people who actually take this test pass on the first time. So it's amazing that, again, you guys are creating a space over there where you have people who have done the hard things. Like it's hard to go to pharmacy school, nursing school and, and, and be certified. It's hard to get an ABAT. I would say it's probably one of the hardest things I've ever heard, you know, people have to go through because I've seen some of the questions you guys have to have to answer. And I'm, I'm, I'm blown away. Uh, so that's amazing that you guys kind of created this space. Um, I've looked through high yields before. I, I, I love their stuff. And, you know, part of that's motivated me to go, go, go my path and doing certain things because foam is a phenomenal place. Uh, foam is, is, is right there. It's in front of you. But unfortunately, we have to take more formalized tests to get to certain spaces in our career. And there's times where we need a little bit more structure. And it seems, if you correct me if I'm wrong, it seems that's what you guys are trying to do. Take something uh, that's out there in the phone world, people who love educating and make it a little bit more formal for the people who need that. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the focuses we've had uh, at High Yield, and so my, my official position there is actually Director of Continuing Education, also Associate Editor. So I get to work on pretty much Every, every project that's out there that we're working on. And Dr. Bustai has been an incredible leader in trying to uh, emphasize our, our pretty much our, our main purpose here. And obviously there's a lot of different resources that are out there where students and residents or even you know, experienced pharmacists mm-hmm. can go and educate themselves, get ready for an exam. Um, our, we have a lot of goals that we've tried to make ourselves different. One of them essentially being we understand for a lot of pharmacists who are going for board certification, um, you know, you know, you don't just want to improve your practice or you know add letters to the back of your name, but you really want to demonstrate uh, to your colleagues, to your patients, to you know your non-pharmacist colleagues also how excellent of a pharmacist you are, how board certified you can be. Uh, the the element that we have really practiced on in, in developing our educational content is to not just make sure you pass the exam. That's actually kind of like a secondary or tertiary goal of ours. We actually want to educate you to the point where you're going to advance clinical practice to benefit patients in, in a much more advanced way. And in, in, in doing that, essentially what we've done is, you know, tailored our material such that we can make sure that you're getting educated. Um, you know, certainly you're going to pass an exam, but again, ultimately, really satisfy you as a, in a career path to, you know, it, it, you know, carry things forward, advance your career, make you a lot more satisfied in your day-to-day job. Like a lot of that comes back to exactly how we structure a lot of these plans. So, mm-hmm. um, and then just to, before I go into that too, we actually had, you know, developed a lot of board certification, like BCPS, uh, ambulatory care, uh, specialty examination, critical care, oncology, some other practice areas before we actually went back and started uh, the review for NAPLEX. But largely in that context, we we were developing a lot of content that, again, focus on making you an excellent clinical provider, not just that you're going to pass the exam. Like we structured it such that, again, in the past, even in my own experience, when you were studying for an exam, all you got your hands on was written material or a book mm-hmm. um, with some you know, basic lecture content uh, that would review the you know, overall general you know, disease states that would be on the exam. And it was really effective and you could kind of get by it and then you'd pass the exam. But our focus is really to make sure uh, that you learn uh, quite a lot of material that you can practice it. You don't just have to learn it, sit there and read it. You can actually practice it. 
Um, we can challenge you to apply that material and then ultimately go back and review. So we've created a lot of lectures and eBooks that uh, provide that information so you can actually learn it. But the two of the key elements that you know we really take a you know a lot of pride on and a lot of focus on is the practice and application where we have a large Q, you know question bank or we call it a Q bank where you can go in and apply all that information and test your knowledge. We have somewhere you know upwards of four thousand questions in our Q bank that you know are tailored specific to individual exams where you can really apply your knowledge and really gain information. Again, applying that knowledge goes beyond just a Q bank, but we have case-based reviews. And a lot of this, there are some recorded sessions, but we also have live sessions um, throughout the study period for board certification where you can come online with us, uh, myself and, and Dr. Bustai, and we have other clinical faculty that can join as well, where we can go over clinical cases, highlight important you know, clinical factors that are related to drug therapy or other interventions at that time, and then open it up to questions, have a discussion online that's mm -hmm. live uh, and again, it's recorded. You can watch it later again. Um, that really challenges and really supports your information, really applies it to a real life situation, not just an exam. And then finally, you can review all that information. And that's where uh, the book that we had just written for uh, NAPLEX really takes, a, takes hold. It's got a lot of information, so you could pretty much get away with it. But what we're trying to do is allow you to buy that book uh, on its own. Uh, but we also have a package where you can apply all these four things together, really improve your knowledge, um, improve your ability to practice. And then that, that comes to real life uh, later on. So it's, it's kind of different than what's available out there, but I mean, I'm really prideful on, on that aspect because we're not just focused again, ultimately on you passing the exam, but we want to make sure that you're an excellent clinical provider. You're going to improve your career path, not just because you got the board certification, but when you return to work with the board certification or the licensure, you're going to improve clinical practice, improve patient care, and that's going to be reflected uh, pretty extensively for you. Yeah. And I think this is the one thing I want, I want to tell people, and I, I hate to be so blunt. There's a difference with someone at the bedside who, who knows what they're doing. And, and unfortunately, it takes time, it takes effort, and it takes you having access to high, you know, high quality education. And I, I know for certain where I was when I was earlier in my training, and I know where I am today in the confidence that comes with that. And I've read tons of articles. I've read, I've been part of many programs. And I think the people who focus on becoming a better provider and the byproduct is passing a test, those are the people who, who end up, again, in our setting, save lives. That's the beautiful thing about I love working in the emergency department, but I think when I'm precepting people, when I have students that come on and I know that they just studied for the test, <laughs> I know that they just, the only reference they have is reading a book, cramming and dumping. And it's, it's amazing now because I'm a professor. I also get to take those students on appy rotations and I have PGY1s and PGY2s. So I get to see the wide range of people. And I think that by providing resources that not only just help them pass a test, but help them be better providers that leads to better confidence and all the imposter syndrome that's going on. Uh, this is going to be a way to prevent that. And I think as we progress in pharmacy education, this is not just going to apply to pharmacists and pharmacy students. Uh, I believe that we have a role, and we talked about this last year. We had our, our last episode. We have a you know a responsibility as educators within the field to do more than just a podcast, do more than just that. And I think we fast forward a year, we have these platforms now to provide a little bit more formal education, 
while giving people a little bit more of the case-based expertise. And we didn't have that five years ago. And especially when you first came out, we didn't have any of this. So yeah. I think what you guys are doing and I think where the, the field is going right now is, is amazing. So it's, it's pretty cool to, to see what you guys are doing and how we're not just thinking about how to take a test anymore. Because if you're doing that, the way that clinical pharmacy is expanding, I just don't believe that we're going to have uniform care of our patients. And if what's going to lead to is, is Craig on shift today? If Craig's not here, I don't know if I can trust that pharmacist as much because I know Craig's going to study. I know Craig's going to teach, but I don't right. know if someone else is going to provide that same level of services. And that's one of the things that we don't talk about with the pharmacy. It's different when you have training and you have this lifelong learning that goes along with that. And I think that's what you guys are trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do for my platforms. And I think that everyone that gets on that wave is going to lead to better outcomes for our patients, uh, decreased costs and things of that nature. So I'm, I'm, I'm really ha- happy what you guys are doing right now. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's really progressive to see how much, uh, you know, other you know, professionals and educators are in line with that too, because what we've experienced recently, um, and we've been partnered with a few of these colleges of pharmacy for a little while, but um, two in particular, like UNT in Dallas and then Ole Miss, uh, we've been working with them in their pharmacy school to, you know, take on what has previously been there as NAPLEX preparation and taking it on as ourselves. And again, not just limit the education, the targeting to passing in Netflix, but again, making them a lot better clinical providers. But um, again, the, these textbooks are available. They're super nice looking. Uh, they're super thick. Also, there's a ton of content, in there. but uh, I'll, I'll give a link. So if anyone wants to buy it, you can go to the website, highyieldmenreviews.com and purchase it. It's available at some other resources too, but Again, at high yield, you can actually see the option to to pair it with a, a full education module, not just the book, but you you would get access to all all the components of it and and really uh, um, you know improve your likelihood of passing a test because ultimately the the book again on its own is excellent. It's going to help educate you, but if you buy a whole package uh, where we incorporate the the lectures, the Q bank, uh, the case based reviews, uh, and the rapid reviews as well. Um, we actually guarantee that you pass. Uh, okay. So if you don't pass, uh, we'll give you your money back uh, or try to work with you in the future to make sure that you actually pass the exam. So it's something that, again, we're committed to. Uh, the, the team that we work with is amazing. Um, and it's it's really transformed my career and in, in my life. But again, and ultimately too, like myself and, and, and Dr. Busti, we still practice clinically primarily. So we're not just focused on educating and reading articles and reading textbooks and applying it to that material. It's really real life based. Um, yeah. And again, speaking about that, since he's an ER physician and I'm a ER pharmacist and there's an ER board certification coming up, uh, we are preparing uh, for that as well. So we'll have study material. I know it's going to be really unknown for the first few phases uh, of the exam, uh, but it's something we are certainly working towards uh, and, and making sure that the content's out there for that as well. Absolutely. It's just going to be a pretty good thing. And I think as we get move forward, I'm just happy that we have so many resources and so many avenues to help people get better. Because I, I say this thing on social media a good bit, and I'm hoping that I don't get sued one day. But my goal is to make sure I don't make a Lexi pharmacist. Uh, and, I, and that's going to be someone who the 
The only thing they know how to do is to look at a drug reference that has nothing to do with your patient in front of you and give recommendations. And it seems like everyone's moving towards that. That's something you guys are doing. And just super excited to just know that we have material now. If you want to do something for students, we have an area for you. If you want a board certification, you have that. If you just want continued just information throughout, we have those those areas. So um, I'm thankful for that. But I kind of want to transition now to something that was a little interesting. And I know many people ask, like, where the heck did Craig go? You uh, was very active on, you know, social media, things of that nature, what everything you had going on. And then it was this gap came. And uh, of course, I, I, I wondered. But again, you always want to give people their privacy. And I didn't know if you want to touch on, you know, where you've been for a while and what some things that's been going on and how can we, you know, learn from these things. Yeah. So it's kind of a long story. So, uh, and, and I'm happy to kind of share everything just from, from my perspective, but uh, a few years ago, actually, this was predating everything that just happened in, over the past few months. But um, I, I decided to actually walk away from social media and uh, the blog I had uh, largely not because things were going bad, um, but I felt as though I was getting some sort of guidance uh, spiritually, really, to uh, focus on other things, not just in my career, but in life. Um, so in the process, I've, I've simplified a lot of things in my life, focusing on, you know, education or just clinical practice or family-based stuff or, you know, whatever else, religion, and, and gotten to this point. Um, you know, my family's been growing a little bit. So we have uh, one daughter, and then my son was born in April of this year, uh, which again, it, as a new parent and a clinical pharmacist and educator, like there's a lot of work to do, uh, but it's, it's fantastic. And just refocusing your life is, is something uh, of a key component to that, that, that is hard to fully appreciate and fully communicate, even when you're going through education, um, there, uh, that, that happens. But one of the things that happened, uh, shortly after, uh, my son was born, was there was a recognition of what was actually going on with me. So dating back a few months, so sometime on a, almost around this time last year, I started to have these weird experiences where um, I would have like a smell of like a, a chemical, kind of like a burning metal, but it was pretty distinctive. I couldn't exactly describe it afterwards, but um, it would last about 10 seconds and it would be brought on by just a few thoughts I was having about my growing household, uh, you know, expecting my son to come, my daughter starting uh, school gymnastics, which was really fun. My wife was, uh, has actually just gotten published as a, with a book. Uh, so she's like a novel, it's a fictional novel, which is really interesting and super proud of her for doing that. But, uh, a lot of those things were just kind of being rem- remembered or thought upon. And then I'd have this uh, smell, it would last about 10 seconds, wouldn't lose any consciousness, anything, could t- still focus whatever I was doing, um, then be gone, and then carry on. It would happen maybe once every three weeks. So I mentioned it to my wife when it first started, and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, and then a couple months later, uh, after my son was born, I mentioned, yeah, you know, these things are still happening. She's like, what? Uh, and so she Googled it and was like, you need to go to your doctor and just, you know, see what's going on. So I was like, that's fine. I'll, I'll go get checked out. Um, so I went to my primary care doctor, who's amazing, Dr. Page here. Uh, he's in a Christus system too. And what was really funny is initially uh, I was seen by a nurse practitioner student. Uh, and I was like, that's fine. I'll get evaluated. Uh, I'm in education too. So I'm happy to kind of be in that system. 
Uh, so she evaluated me and took my history and I'm like, and she was like, you know what, like maybe referring you to like a, you know, psychotherapist or someone like that can help, you know, you figure out what's going on with these, uh, issues that you're having. I'm like, all right, that sounds totally reasonable. And she's like, okay, I'll go talk to the attending. Anyway. So after she did that, he came in and was like, kind of taking my history again. He's like, wait, what you're having these smells that are happening. And then you're having thoughts. You're not losing consciousness or anything. I'm like, yeah, it's exactly what's going on. He's like, we need to get an MRI uh, to see what's going on. He's like, I don't think there's anything seriously wrong, but we'll at least start there and rule it out. So I did. I was like, that's totally fine. I'll get an MRI. Uh, <laughs> and again, going through that whole process, I'm like, oh, this is kind of interesting. I've never really been in as a patient in healthcare yeah. before. I've been a provider for so many years in, in education. So I'm like, oh, that'll be kind of interesting to see what things are like. So you know, in like contrast, getting that during the MRI and going through it and whatnot. Anyway, long story short, I uh, had the MRI. I was like, okay, this is totally fine. Uh, and then walked out, carried on with life. Uh, <clears throat> but later that day, actually, uh, because we have my chart, um, I got a notification that the MRI was red. I was like, oh, that's unusual for an outpatient to have their MRI read immediately. Um, and I didn't get any, any other alerts, but I could read the report. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just check to see if it's, you know, no acute findings and normal range and suggest follow-up. Um, but that wasn't true. So it was a really long report. Uh, and I just scrolled to the bottom where it was kind of talking about the, the, you know, observation, what they actually saw. And, uh, they identified a brain tumor. Uh, so I had a brain tumor in my left temporal lobe, uh, that was actually fairly large. Uh, and then there's also some upper, uh, upper cranial findings that we'll talk about later. Um, but, so that was incredibly terrifying to see on my chart. And, and then I reached out to my, my physician and he's like, man, I'm so sorry. There's no reason. Like sometimes these results head out. Anyway, I wasn't really upset about it. Um, it was just more, you know, totally unreal yeah. what I was going through. Um, especially as an ER pharmacist, I'm like, I have something in my brain. Do I need to go to the ER now? And yeah. <laughs> get evaluated, get a CT scan, get intubated, go to the uh, it's yeah. totally atypical for just, you know, sitting around watching what's happening and waiting. And long story short, um, I was, I was on the phone with Dr. Page. He had, you know, pretty much called me right away. Uh, and he's like, you need to, I need to refer you to, uh, UT Southwestern, which is in Dallas, which is about two hours away. I was like, Oh, I, I know the neurosurgeon here I actually run with him on the weekends. Can he just Take care of the case here. He's like, he's an excellent neurosurgeon, but you need a subspecialty, which I didn't know existed in neurosurgery. There's a subspecialty <laughs> of neuro-oncology surgery, which is amazing. But anyway, so I got referred to them. Um, and again, the appointment was in a, in a week. And at this point, it was, it's actually really nice to have, again, my chart is wonderful because uh, you do e-visits. And for this, you don't really need a repeat physical exam. You just need uh, a, a physician looking at the MRI and then seeing what's going on, making recommendations. So Ultimately, they're they're like you have three options. You can watch it, wait for it, see what happens. Um, we'll start you on some anti seizure medication. And we'll just watch it, do some repeat MRIs. Second option is we'll biopsy it. So we'll stick a needle in your brain, you know, bring you in the OR, do that, uh, and then see what kind of tumor it is. It could be nothing. Uh, it could be you know cancerous, and we'll figure out what to do after that. And then third option was. Uh, just bring you in, do a craniotomy, take it out, um, and we'll follow up afterwards. Uh, without any hesitation, again, just kind of spiritually guided, uh, I was like, we, we're taking it out. Uh, so they're like, that's total great 
uh, decision. We certainly recommend that, uh, but we like to present all three options. And uh, they referred it to a subspecialist in their group who is a neuro-oncology surgeon, but she specializes in this particular type of tumor um, in the temporal lobe and the specific procedure that I actually underwent. So uh, in the in the workup, it was pretty extensive. I went through um, some repeat uh, MRI uh, exams. So again, like you've probably seen on movies or TV, when they do a functional MRI, mm-hmm. they have someone in the MRI facility, and then they're asking them questions, and then they're seeing like the, the brain function uh, during that MRI, um, which is almost exactly what I went through. But in reality, they don't actually ask you questions for a verbal response, you actually have to have an intracranial response. Um, And there's all kinds of things that went through and is a two hour long uh, scan, which was actually fascinating. Um, But again, I was like, this is kind of interesting. Again, being a healthcare provider, knowing so much, but now actually, you know, being on the other end of it. uh, And it was certainly interesting that I did a neuropsychiatric exam, not for a psych purpose, but for um, uh, short term memory uh, purpose, because that was one of the risk factors that I was going into the surgery for is that I was going to lose short-term memory. Uh, one of the other risk factors was I was going to have a uh, left, uh, vision, uh, deficit where the top left visual field was going to be essentially gone, uh, because there was a, a left cranial nerve or optic nerve, uh, that the tumor was around. Uh, so they're assessing that as well. Uh, and then, yeah, so the neuropsychiatric part kind of assessed the, the, this is the short-term knowledge which is actually kind of interesting because instead of a two hour MRI, that was a five hour uh, oh, wow. neuropsychiatric exam, which was totally interesting. Uh, but again, part of, part of my care. Um, and then uh, I was presenting the option. It's like, okay, we could wait until, and this was in July. And they're like, we can wait until um, September to do your craniotomy um, or as soon as you want. And I said, when's your next availability? They're like, in two weeks. I said, let's do it. So in two weeks, uh, went, went in for the, uh, the craniotomy, which was uh, interesting. So again, like you would see on TV, I had a partially awake craniotomy mm-hmm. where halfway through the procedure, they uh, have the patient awake and on movies and like, uh, yeah, like in the house um, and things of that nature. Yeah. You're like playing a violin or, you know, having some musical or really interesting, uh, action while you're in, in neurosurgery. Uh, so I had to learn the violin real quick, uh, that actually is not what happened, but I had to repeat some of the short-term memory assessments, which was really, really interesting um, going through. Again, it was somewhat of a fascinating perspective, you know, going into surgery, especially from a pharmacist perspective, because I got to talk to the anesthesiologist and attending and the resident uh, before the procedure. And I was like, just out of curiosity, uh, you know, I'm an ER pharmacist. uh, What do I get to get intubated? And they're like, well, first of all, you get a super glottic airway um, because we have to wake you up. We want you to be able to speak. So I'm like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, And then secondly, they're like, "Uh, so our loading dose for uh, propofol is uh, two milligram per kilo. I was like, oh, as a bolus. And then then you get sufentanil. We're not going to paralyze you. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And what's the drip at? They're like, you start at 50 mics per kilo. I was like, wow, that's kind of a high dose. I'm like, but that's totally fine. And then in the OR, right, right as they're starting the procedure, Again, it got moved over to the OR table and they're like, okay, we're going to bolus you with the propofol now and count back from 10. And all I can, all I can remember is 10, yeah. nine, out. Yep. <laughs> totally out. So um, during the propofol sedation, it was fairly you know, reminiscent of what you see in the literature. Like I had no yeah. dreams, no perception of time, and then woke up 
it felt like moments later, halfway through the surgery to do the wake uh, craniotomy portion of it. Um, did fine. It felt, I remember seconds of it, but I, I don't remember actually how long it was, but the repeat um, short-term memory assessment kind of went through well. Um, so I ended up retaining a lot of that. And then the visual assessment, uh, I actually have no neuro, uh, visual deficit. So like my, my neuro-oncology surgeon, Dr. Patel at, at uh, UT Southwestern, she's amazing. Uh, fundamentally, she is truly, truly amazing. Um, anyway, so after that, you know, was in the ICU for one night uh, and actually tried to speak to the ER or the ICU pharmacist who was yeah. on rounds the next day, but they never came in, which is no big deal, <laughs> I guess. Uh, and then transferred to the floor and just kind of did well after that. So uh, it's been, man, over, uh, I don't know, a couple months since the exam now or the surgery now. So I've got like the big scar on the left side of my head where the neurosurgery was and hair is starting to cover it a little bit more. So it's a little bit more discreet, but, um, and swelling has gone tremendously down. So, um, you know, afterwards was on seizure prophylaxis for a couple of weeks and some other medications was titrated off that with no, no evidence. And, um, really the, the most, I guess, complicated part after, after this has been, um, what the, what the tumor analysis ended up showing. So, in a, in a short explanation, the, the report for the tumor analysis, the opening line was, this was a really complicated analysis. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a really long report. Uh, ultimately, there's a debate about, you know, what grade of uh, tumor it was, and it wasn't benign, un- unfortunately, but uh, the neuro-oncology surgeon, Dr. Patel, and one of the senior oncolo- neuro-oncologists uh, over at UT they, they're like, we took out hundred percent of the tumor. You're fine. You don't need any radiation. You don't need any chemo. I'm like, mm-hmm. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but on their tumor board, uh, based on the report, they're like, there are some oncologists recommending you still get, um, radiation oncology. So complicatedly, they said, we're not going to make a decision. We're presenting it to you to see what your decision is. Uh, and again, ultimately I saw all the providers and they were all amazing. Like they're not, biased or not angry yeah. one way or the other, they, you know, presented my options and their rationale and such a totally rational, um, and equal kind of presentation. And then with my decision, uh, they were certainly in support of that. And they're like, we're going to keep assessing you. Um, and if anything changes, we'll change our recommendation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, that's great. So I get a, essentially a repeat MRI every three months for the first year or so. And then we'll go from there. Uh, but so far, everything has been um, pretty, pretty well. I'm back to work, uh, you know, intelligently have a lot of the same stuff still retained. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been certainly an adaptive life uh, since then, trying to understand what happened to me. Yeah. Um, not really know exactly what's going to happen in the future, uh, but really, you know, reminded to treat every day that I have as a blessing. And, you know, just view it one day at a time, one task at a time, and uh, kind of come back to that every day, especially when things are not going well. Um, so there's a lot other, there's many other details related to my story, but ultimately that's been the uh, the, the crux of it and the, the overall experience yeah. that I've gone through. Yeah. And at first, before I even get an asking question, I just want to thank you for for sharing such a you know, most people say a vulnerable story because many people don't get to go through those things and 
many of us don't understand. We just hear the aftermath. And we don't understand the, the thought process and we don't understand that. So I just want to thank you for, for sharing it because it's tough. You know, all of us have other family members or we have people around us that go through certain things, but we don't get to hear those things. And we definitely don't get to hear it on a podcast. Uh, we definitely yeah. don't get to hear this in depth. So I think this is probably going to be the first time that anyone in this space from emergency medicine, pharmacy, or just pharmacy in general, get to hear something like this, especially when it comes from one of our own. Uh, yeah. I think that most people will recognize you as one of the uh, our leaders within emergency medicine pharmacy. You've done a lot. You've done uh, tremendous things. That I think people want to come from all over to come train with you. I know when I first came out of, of residency, you know, I was looking at coming to PGY1. I was looking to come out there. The only reason, you know, Christ was on my list because of you was there. So I just want to thank you for, for sharing that with us. And it's just very unique because, again, we're so used to being providers that it's very challenging to understand being a patient. And yeah, it's it's so hard. I mean, I, I completely relate to what you were saying, because, I mean, up until then, I, I had heard lectures from other, you know, other patients or other pharmacists that had family members that, you know, they were in the hospital trying to help them get cared for and whatnot and how complicated things were, but even still like never fully appreciating it. And I'm not expecting anyone to appreciate what I'm trying to say as like improving clinical practice. It's more just, I mean, this is an element of life that uh, we focus so much on professionalism, which is totally appropriate, but there's other aspects of life uh, that are not you know, well discussed or mm-hmm. understood. And there's no understanding of this. It's just, it's just trying to share what I've gone through. Maybe one person out there can hear it or apply it to themselves, but uh, it's, it, it's just kind of sharing everything that I've gone through. Yeah. And I think for me, I, this is something I've you know, over the last year or two have definitely tried to think about a lot more of, it's just all the things outside of, you know, being professional, all things outside of being a provider is those things are are equally as important. And life is just, we see it from the provider side, but especially in the ER, life is so unpredictable. And for me, how I, I take this story and I've been thinking about it all the way until we recorded it. I was like, man, you know, this is, this is heavy on me. This is heavy on me. And I'm the person who's just interviewing you. I, it's a completely different story for, 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 for you and just being able to, to share this with us again. I just can't, you know, thank you enough because again, I think we should start focusing on other aspects of our life. And it seems that you you, you were led to start doing that thing, doing that a few years ago. And it's a phenomenal thing. And I'm hoping that that same path that you was able to go through then is going to be the same thing that, in addition to the, the therapies that you've got and the surgeries got be the thing that keeps you, you know, doing this for 50, you know, you know 70 more, more years, you know. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm thankful uh, to show that. But again, is there any, if you can say one thing from just, I wouldn't even see the diagnosis or anything like that, but just being a patient, is anything that you learned from that side of things helps you on the provider side of things? Uh, yeah. There's more than one thing. I'm going to try and... Uh, man, it's complicated. Uh, I guess the main thing I went through that I could help communicate to others is... Um, trusting the experts that are caring for you, um, not being like, you can apply your knowledge to what is ever going on, but the experts that are in your care or in a care of a loved one, um, if they're good and excellent, you can 
bring them discussion. Um, but I wouldn't say bring them like verbal challenges immediately. Like a, a great example here is uh, one of the, there's a few things that I went through with actually the drugs I was on. Um, one of the biggest issues that I had no idea about um, was, so I was on uh, seizure prophylaxis after the surgery with Keppra. It was great. I was like, oh, this is, I'd rather be on Keppra than anything else mm-hmm. anti-epileptic wise. So I'm like, it's going to be fine. Um, and at, at UT, they uh, did IV push. And I'm like, oh, that's totally fine. Uh, and I started at a gram Q12 um, and titrated down over, over the course of six weeks, but a gram Q12. And as soon as I got started getting pushed, it hurt like crazy. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, I'm going to recommend myself get converted to PO. And they did. They didn't have a problem with that. But that was totally atypical that I went through with that. But then other things started to happen because of Kepra. Um, the largest thing that was the most impactful uh, to me in my life was uh, the onset of depression. Because mm-hmm. um, I had no idea uh, what was causing this radical onset of depression. Um, it could have been a combination of the post-surgical stuff, um, just going through everything. But uh, it, I, I attribute it to the Kepra because two days after I start, stopped the Kepra, um, I had an it, you know unmistakable mood change and okay. you know cerebral processing change, um, and then looked back into the evidence with it, and it's largely case-based reporting of Kepra causing adverse events. And I ended up talking with my neurosurgeon at a different visit about it, and I'm like, hey, like, is this something that you've experienced in other patients before? And she's like unfortunately, yeah, like it's, it's relatively common with Keppra. And I was like, I didn't even bother recommending an alternative drug because like phenytoin yeah. or carbamazepine, those are incredibly toxic. And I wouldn't like the adverse event profile is totally more significant in those drugs or about acid. even I'm like, I'd rather not take that. I'd still take Keppra. And she's like, again, that's their complete rationale in outpatient in post-surgical uh, reference that they're like, okay, Kepra is not entirely safe. Yep. Um, there are some issues with IV push and there are some issues long-term, but in the grand context of anti-epileptic options, it's our best option. We can try to treat things otherwise, but like things like, I mean, that element where you can bring those things up, but in, uh, you know, an inquisitive, more educational discussion rather than, I mean, just saying, well, I have to get switched to something else. Yeah. I don't know. It, just going through everything together and say, okay, this is, and I think sometimes if you know, it's a little different, you can say, oh, maybe this is just a Kepra, you know, if you, mm-hmm. if you knew beforehand, but I think sometimes if you don't know, and when you're very intelligent, it's actually more, you know, distressing. Cause it's like, it's so much stuff, you know, about certain things. Then when you actually have to go through it, it's a completely different thing. Like I remember having sinus infection and, and just simply have to take in, you know, oral antibiotics i'm like oh this is nothing twice a day and i'm like three days in i'm busy i miss a dose here i miss a dose there i'm like man we say so many things about non-compliance and the patient just don't want to get better and i'm taking a couple day therapy of amoxicillin that i had no side effects from and i'm like imagine taking 15 medications for chronic disease states and it's just amazing when we, when we start to think about being a patient and it's something that of course, a lot of providers, you know, we fear, we fear being a patient because we lose that control. And yeah. I think that's something that's very challenging for, 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 for most of us. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, again, I had so many other experiences with drugs I was on. Um, I was, I had a secondary infection uh, on, on the IV site 
uh, or the surgical site. And I was, and again, Dr. Patel is amazing on the phone. I just called her or just sent a my chart message. And she, she's like, here's myself on this talk. Uh, so like, it was amazing getting evaluated and you have to go in again, but she started me on Bactrim and Rifampin. And again, like as a ER pharmacist, I was like for post-surgical infection, like Rifampin, I was, yeah. I didn't even bother question. I'm like, I'll just take it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but like, you know, retroactively thinking about it, I'm like, okay, there's MRSA coverage for the skin with Bactrim, but she's yeah. primarily concerned of the surgical site and getting back into my CNS. What's going to penetrate the CNS or FAMPIN? Mm. Um, I'm like, that's totally rational. And I was yeah. like, okay, I guess you could deal with that. All the adverse events with these two drugs I had nothing. I was, yeah. Like they're totally fine to take. The only uh, like odd thing was like urine turning red, right. yeah. but I, I knew that wasn't blood. I knew that was Rifampin. And actually over the two week course of, uh, or a 10 day course of therapy that actually went away with like hundred percent compliance. And I brought that up to her and she was like, totally fascinated. I'm like, I didn't know that would happen either. Um, it's, it's, it's just, again, I've gone through a lot of pharmacy school and a lot of education, post-residency training, residency training, all that. And all the things I learned about drugs in this context have superseded a lot of the didactic learning I learned about drugs otherwise. And my like future, you know, education, self-education stuff I'm applying with Tony at high yield is specifically related to that. It's there's like, you know, there's a lot of explanation for all these things with drugs and, you know, primary things uh, that we need to worry about, but there's also a lot of explanation that we need from experts or hear from other people that uh, is certainly applicable um, to what we're going through. So uh, yeah. And then, I mean, ultimately after, after, you know, my diagnosis and my decision for, you know, after surgical therapy, one of the incredibly fascinating things that was brought up by Dr. Patel, she's like, listen, after we get, you know, we analyze the, the tumor cell, we identified it, you know, what the cause is, and it's like IDH1 mutation, which is part of um, Krebs cycle, which is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and then the particular mutation is, I think it was like R132A or K, I can't remember exactly. Um, but anyway, long story short, uh, there was a vaccine under development in Germany wow. uh, to target that. And it had been undergoing for years in the past. And it had actually just gotten published in February of 21. Um, and it was incredibly effective in patients that had, you know, my subtype of tumor that were on radiation and chemo, it significantly uh, improved their uh, chance of actually not having it regrow at all. So uh, their presentation, their recommendation after I, you know, I said, I don't want radiation in oncology they said, would you be open to the vaccine? I'm like, absolutely. Yep. Uh, that sounds totally fascinating. And they're like, you'd have to be a, a you know a subject in the study. I'm like a hundred percent on board with that. Yep. Um, so they actually emailed the the primary investigator who's in Germany. I was like, would you do this in the U S and he's like, yeah, in two years we'll do it. I'm like, this is awesome. Yep. Certainly become a patient, even though I've been an investigator uh, yep. in, you know, different aspects of research in um, taking on that risk as, you know, I don't know, what the benefit is, but this is incredibly fascinating, especially in a vaccine that was developed in the same, you know, theology as what we're experiencing with the COVID vaccine. Now. Absolutely. It was one of those pre, uh, pre-development uh, or pre-COVID vaccine developmental agents that, you know, now COVID vaccine is, you know, taken off and really amplified that elsewhere. So, I mean, there's a lot of elements of care like that, that I've been exposed to that. I mean, as an ER pharmacist, I've never read anything about oncology. And when uh, we were preparing, uh, you know, our oncology uh, content for, you know, board certification. I, I had gone through a, quite a lot of it and quite a lot of the guidelines and, you know, basic context. So for like 
CNS tumors. I had written quite a lot of content about it, but my particular subtype of brain tumor is actually such a minority because it affects um, pretty young patients. And that was part of the, one of the other things that uh, was brought up in, in, in after, after surgery and kind of it, it, expressing exactly what I had gone through that uh, my brain tumor has, is not new. I've had it the majority of my life. Um, and it's just been diagnosed now. So what was really interesting and in reflecting on that, and what the one thing I mentioned beforehand uh, in the initial uh, MRI report is I, I had other issues in my brain that were identified. And they it was one of those uh, elements on the report where you'd see like, oh, there's some like small vessel damage in this other area of his brain. And it could be related to hypertension or stroke. So he needs like, we're just going to refer for other therapy with that. And I brought it up to Dr. Patel. I'm like, what were what's the meaning of these findings? And she's like, well, uh, they're likely from three different causes. One being the hypertension and, and CAD, which you don't have. So that's not a cause. There's some other secondary cause that she's like, this is the second most common. But then third, she's like, uh, they're secondary from concussions. Have you ever had a concussion before? Mm. I was like, uh, yeah. So I played hockey growing up. I was a goalie. So I got hit in the head numerous times. Uh, I played football, even though I'm really small growing up and I got tackled a bunch of times uh, and then like, yeah, head injuries. And then oddly playing baseball, I was actually knocked, lost consciousness twice um, from, I was a shortstop going for a fly ball oh, yeah. and I called it, but the second baseman kept going for it too. And I was just looking at the ball and I just remember waking up on the ground. Um, and then I didn't finish the game. And then secondly, at baseball camp, I was playing uh, warm up with another guy and I w- it wasn't his fault. I wasn't paying attention. I had the glove right in front of my head and the ball went straight over the glove and straight in my face right, yeah. and woke up on the ground with my handful of blood. Uh, not remembering exactly what happened, but um, what was really interesting is I never went to the hospital following any of those events. Um, no. Never got a CT scan, uh, never had any other assessment because if I did at that time, the tumor would have been identified. Um, but for whatever reason, it waited until this part in my life to be identified, um, which is completely perplexing. And then also the size of the tumor, uh, seeing that on a CT, if you're an ER pharmacist and you go to the CT scan and you're like, yeah. Oh, it was farm D positive. Yep. Uh, let's put it yep. that way. Uh, so it was pretty big. And, uh, just seeing that size on someone with an acute hemorrhage or an acute onset of, uh, a tumor finding they're incredibly neurally, uh, you know, subtracting, I guess, uh, in, in that patient. But for me, um, most of my neural function is still intact because again, as my brain developed over the years, different functions were yeah, relocated, which was really fascinating to learn. Cause I always, so number one, as an educator myself, I always thought that the way I thought about things was the way you should be thinking about things or mm-hmm. learning it. And now I realize if this is probably totally yeah, typical. So I'm being a little bit more open to that. And then secondly, there's like some other finding uh, in the, pre-exam um, that I had gone through where the, one of the providers was like, you're purely ambidextrous. I'm like, I didn't even realize that, but I guess in other things uh, in my life, I guess you're, you're totally right. And then the neurosurgeon was like, you're partially ambidextrous. I'm <laughs> like, I fully agree with that. But again, it's, it's just these weird atypical findings, but um, again, just going through all that, it's just been uh, completely transformative in my life and understanding, you know, what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life. Um, it's been uh, really informative to kind of go through that and listen to, you know, all the resources I'm being told and the guidance I'm receiving in in kind of following that. Yeah, that's amazing. And 
I'm, I'm going to cap it because I'm pretty sure we can go back and forth about this this all day. But I just, yeah, I have been in, I've been thinking about this for a while and I feel like I've been transformed just by being, you know, on the other side of this. And I think one of the things that we should do is just make sure we're really taking a step back at times and thinking about our patients because, you know, at, at one point or other, we potentially could be a patient. Um, and then the next part is just making sure from an education standpoint, like you said, trusting the experts and you're an expert in your area and you you have platforms that you can be able to display that. Uh, we have, we, we, again, here at Form So Hard, we have different platforms that we can we can do. And we're going to put all this in the show notes for you guys and go check out all the work that Craig's been doing. But I think this really answers the question, where's Craig been? You know, I think this is the first time we've been able to, to hear from that and just hear this amazing story. And uh, I just, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and, and cut it there. Any any final just closing thoughts when it comes to everything? <laughs> uh, yeah. I won't go on for a long time. Uh, I guess just be open to all kinds of things that change in your life. Um, I mean, ultimately the biggest thing that has changed my life is spirituality. Um, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Perfect. Well, again, guys, I'm going to put all of the links and everything for, for high yields in our, in our show notes online. Um, as things come up, guys, just please reach out to me. This is a very different episode for us. And I think it's probably the most powerful thing we've had on Form So Hard so far um, or probably ever. So I thank you guys again for listening to another episode. And I end it the same way every time, guys. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in the ED. But everything you do, make sure you form so hard. Mm-hmm.